glad you're here. I hope you're here. I hope you didn't uh, give up on us. But we are going to be looking at Parasha Fukat, the sixth and seventh Aliyah of this Parasha, as we're concluding it up on this beautiful and sunny and bright and a little warm, but hey, it's summer uh, here in the uh, great state of Texas. And the preparation day as we are preparing to have our uh, Shabbat time together coming up. Baruch Hashem. We are on page 851 in the Art Scroll Humash in the 21st chapter, beginning with the, uh, the 10th verse. This is going to be, of course, uh, the 6th Aliyah, and then we'll just continue reading through the 7th Aliyah to the end of uh, this parasha. So it says here in the 10th verse, The children of Israel journeyed and encamped at Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and encamped in the ruins of the passes in the wilderness facing Moab towards the rising sun. From there they journeyed and encamped in the valley of Zerid. And from there they journeyed and encamped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness, that juts out from the border of the Amorites. For Aaron is in the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of Adonai, the gift of the Sea of Reeds and the rivers of Arnon, the outpouring of the rivers when it veered to dwell at Ar and leaned against the borders of Moab. And from there to the well, it is the well of which Adonai said to Moses, assemble the people and I shall give them water. Then Israel sang this song, come up, O well, call out to it. Well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people excavated through a lawgiver, which with their staves, a gift from the wilderness. The gift went to the valley and from the valley to the heights and from the heights to the valley in the field of Moab at the top of the peak overlooking the surface of the wilderness. Verse 21 begins the seventh Aliyah. Israel sent emissaries to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We shall not turn off to field or vineyard. We shall not drink well water on the king's roads, shall we travel until we pass through your border. But Sihon did not permit Israel to pass through their border. And Sihon assembled his entire people and went out against Israel to the wilderness. He arrived to Jahaz and waged war against Israel. Israel smote him and with the edge of the sword took possession of his land. And from Arnon to Jabok to the children of Ammon, from the border of the children of Ammon, was powerful. Israel took all the cities, and Israel settled in all the Amorite cities, and Heshbon, and on its suburbs. For Heshbon, it was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorite, and he was warned against the first king. He warred against the first king of Moab, and took all his land and his control until Arnon. Regarding this, the people would say. Come to Heshbon, let it be built and established as the king of Sihon. For a fire has come forth from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the masters of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, O Moab, you are lost, O people of Heshbon. He made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives of the king of Amorites, Sihon. Their sovereignty over Heshbon was lost. It was removed from Dibon. And we laid waste to Naphoth, which reaches to Medaba. Israel settled in the land of Amorite, and Moshe sent to spout Jazer, and they conquered its suburbs, 
and he drove away the Amorite that was there. They turned and ascended by the way of Bashan, O king, king of king of Bashan, or excuse me, Og, I said Og, pardon me. Og, king of Bashan, went out against them. He and his entire people to do battle at Eder, Edrei. Hashem said to Moshe, do not fear him, for into your hands have I given him. His entire people and his land you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwells in Heshbon. They smote him, his sons, and all his peoples until there was no survivor left of him, and they took possession of his land. The children of Israel journeyed and encamped in the plains of Moab on the bank of the Jordan opposite Jericho. That is the end of the parasha, and uh, let's explore now a few points here uh, that are of uh, great interest and look at what Hashem would want us to see. I want us to take a look back here at a couple of things with respect to uh, the copper uh, serpent and what we can uh, glean from this. And let me see here, trying to kind of um, bring together a few thoughts. The um, Midrash Rabbah, and this is Midrash Rabbah Chukat 19 and section 22, Ask a question why there was the, um, why a serpent? Why did Hashem use serpents to, uh, to speak again, or excuse me, to afflict the people who were speaking against Moses? So here it is from chapter 21 and verse 6. God sent the fiery serpents against the people and they bit the people. A large multitude of Israel died. So it says, why did God see fit to extract retribution from, from them through serpents? It says, because the primordial serpent was the first to initiate Lashon Hara and was cursed because of it. So um, Lashon Hara is a uh, very, very uh, bad thing. And so here we have, in the very first... Um, act of the serpent, some people would say, right? Some people say erroneously, you're not allowed to speak Lashon Hara, but that only applies to Jews. And that is, uh, that is not true. Someone might be able to cite something from, from a, a commentator about that, but um, Lashon Hara is not good, my friends, against anybody. And the way that we know that is because the serpent in the garden spoke Lashon Hara. Who, to whom was he speaking Lashon Hara? He was speaking Lashon Hara to Adam. The word Adam means mankind. So, so Lashon Hara to mankind is evil, my friends. It's evil. And besides that, we're not allowed as Jews to treat Gentiles bad. You're not allowed to cheat them in business. Let me think about this for a second. If you're not allowed to cheat a Gentile in business, what makes you think you're allowed to talk to Lashon Hara about him? Right? Isn't that the height of arrogance? Aren't we supposed to treat others like we, like we would want ourselves to be treated? Isn't that what the Mashiach thought? Like if, so I've, I've, heard that, I've heard that before. I've heard that even recently that someone had said that it's okay to speak Lashon Hara as long as you're not talking about a Jew. That is utterly absurd. And so... It says here, because the primordial serpent was the first to initiate Lashon Hara. If you have found yourself, by the way, this week, if you have found yourself in a situation where people are speaking Lashon Hara about you, just know we're talking in this parasha about the primordial serpent, ser serpent who spoke Lashon Hara. 
And what are we saying about Lashon Hara? He was lying about, did God really say, no, no, God doesn't, he didn't mean that. What he meant was this or that. You know, it's all Lashon Hara. So it says, and was cursed because of it. And yet the complainers did not take a lesson from it, for they spoke Lashon Hara against God. Not only did we not learn a lesson from the primordial serpent, but we now find ourselves speaking Lashon Hara against Hashem. Therefore, the Holy One must be, he said, let the serpent who was the first to initiate Lashon Hara come and exact retribution from the speakers of Lashon Hara. As it is stated, he who breaches a fence will be bitten by a serpent. Ecclesiastes 10.8. It says in the footnotes, it says the speaker of Lashon Hara is called one who breaches a fence for as expounded in Arakin the 15b in the Talmud, God surrounds the tongue with two walls, one of bone, that is the teeth, one of flesh, that's the lips, and as a safeguard against speaking the Shanhara. So our tongue has to burst out of its fences, that is the mouth, in order to speak Lashanhara. Lashanhara is a very difficult sin to um, to avoid. And uh, in fact, I think this is why, of course, Yaakov wrote about it in his letter. He talked about, you know, the uh, speaking of Shalhara and who contained the tongue, etc. Something that we should work on daily and uh, we should really strive hard to um, to do everything that we can to guard our tongue. Which, by the way, I just, I just throw, I throw out a, a, a little thought to that. The idea is not to focus on Shalhara, but to focus on Shemrash HaLashon, to guarding the tongue. In other words, we want to be people who are righteousness-focused and Torah-focused, not, not sin-focused. So sometimes when you say, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to work on my anger problem by, by focusing on not getting angry. And sometimes that uh, can be helpful, but very often it sets us up for failure because if you focus on something, uh, you kind of are drawn towards that. So it's better... In that case, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on patience. I'm going to focus on judging favorably. I'm going to j- focus on, on joy. I'm going to focus on seeing the best in every situation and everybody. And that way you avoid anger. But if you focus on not being angry, then that can draw you towards anger. Same thing with Lashon Hara. If you focus on not speaking Lashon Hara, you sometimes find yourself falling into that trap because you're, you're, you're naturally drawn to that. But if rather you focus on speaking good things and speaking uplifting things, this is what Paul meant when he said, you know, whatever is good and righteous and positive, think upon those things, focus upon those things. So it's all about how we have our focus. Whatever you're focusing on, that's what you're going to hit. That's why when you go to the range, they talk to you about putting the the little front sight dot in the middle of the the target and focusing on that and let the target in the background be, be blurry, but just focus on your front sight. And that way you'll hit the target because you're focusing on what your aim is, if you will, to use a intentional pun. So it says, another explanation, why did God extract retribution from them through the serpents? Now, this, this is what I'm about to tell you is going to confirm what I said the other day about the fact that the manna can be anything. It says, for even if the serpent were to eat all the delicacies in the world, their taste would turn to that of dirt in its mouth. As is stated, 
A serpent's food will be dirt, Isaiah 65, 25. Yet, said God, these people eat the manna, whose taste turns into that of many different delicacies, as it is stated in reference to the manna, and he gave them their request, Psalm 106, 15. And it states, this 40-year period, Adonai, your God, was with you. You did not lack a word, Devarim 2.7, indicating that they did not lack any taste that could be attained by uttering a word. So, um, what does this, this mean? It points out in the footnotes here that when people had the manna, they could just speak a word. I want this to be fish. I want this to be uh, phlegm, uh, or uh, I want this to be uh, a ribeye steak. I want this to be brisket or whatever. I want it to taste like something really delicious. Whatever they would say would taste like that. It says, therefore, let the serpent who eats many different types of food and yet in whose mouth there is but a single taste of dirt, whatever the serpent would eat would just taste like dirt. No matter what he ate. That was the curse of the serpent. But it says here, even though this was the case, the serpent does not complain against its creator. And let, let me extract retribution from those who eat a single type of food, that is the manna, and taste many different types of food depending on their desire, and yet they complain against their creator. So this is why the serpent was brought against the people, why specifically the serpent was brought. Now, we learn in the story, of course, that um, Moshe is told to actually make a serpent uh, and, and to put it and hold it up. And he makes it out of copper, um, which is not exactly, was not one of the instructions of Hashem, but nevertheless, um, Moses made the copper, which is kind of a veiled uh, availed uh, thumbs up to the oral Torah because uh, just just to kind of step aside for a second and talk about this for just a moment. There's many people who erroneously are totally against any idea of a soul of a of a oral Torah, any kind of customs, traditions, um, what have you that Judaism has put forth. They think somehow that that's wrong. They've added to the scripture. Well, if that were the case, we've got a major problem here. Because God said to Moses to make a serpent and put it on a pole, lift it up. He did not say to make it out of copper. So Moses came along, he made it out of copper. So if we want to take the logic of those who speak against the the Jewish oral Torah, right, the Pharisee, Pharisaical oral Torah, which by the way, Yeshua himself was a Pharisee, and at, yes, he followed the oral Torah, absolutely, it's a provable fact, it's undeniable. Then now we have to say that Moses did something very bad because he added to God's word. God didn't say make it out of copper, but yeah, he made it out of copper. In fact, God didn't say what to make it out of. He didn't say make it out of metal, make it out of wood, whatever. But Moses made it out of copper. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that there is latitude for these types of things and heaven uh, gives it a thumbs up. So there's a uh, article that was written a few years ago uh, by uh, Ben Burton called Who Caught the Revelation of the Holy Snake? I'm just going to read a couple of inserts that he, he quotes in here to give us some insight about why a serpent. So the people, it's kind of odd, isn't it, right? You're, you're, a serpent is brought to wreak destruction, 
And then God says, make a servant. And so the Midrash talks about the fact that God uses that with which we are wounded in order to bring a healing. It's not like that among among men. You know, if you go, if, if you get cut by a knife, if you're in the kitchen and you cut yourself with a knife, when you go to the emergency room, they don't use a knife to heal you. When you go to the emergency room, if, it's, if the cut is that bad, you go to the emergency room, they, they use, uh, you know, stitches, they use bandages to, to heal you. They don't use a knife, but God doesn't work that way. God uses that with which the, uh, the, the cause the, uh, the wound in order to bring about the healing. This is why when, in order to defeat death, Hashem had to use death in order to defeat death. This is why he had to use a serpent in order to defeat the serpent. But why a serpent? What does Judaism teach about this serpent? And by the way, we have Mashiach. Now, those of you who are listening are, most of you, are believers in Messiah Yeshua, thank God. And so this whole story is, is so obvious. We, we have Mashiach being lifted up on a pole, but it does present some potential problems because what we have being lifted on a pole is a serpent, a symbol of evil. I take this back to the statement that was made uh, in the apostolic letters that say, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And when people who don't believe in the Messiah look out at the, uh, the Mashiach um, up there on a pole, so to speak, they, many people are appalled. They look at it and say, oh, this is evil. Uh, they, what they see is the serpent, right? They, what they see is something that's wicked, something that's evil, something that's, that's not good. So what does, the, what does all of this represent in Jewish thought? Can something that was seemingly evil bring about healing? In this case, the, the crucifixion of the Messiah. Well, uh, Mr. Burton in his, in his paper does a, a, a great job of putting this together. I just want to quote a couple of sources that he cites. This first source is from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, Kabbalah and the Healing of the Soul. It says, just as a Malik represents the epitome of evil, so does the positive snake represent the epitome of good. Mashiach himself is referred to as the holy snake as alluded to by the phenomenon that the numerical value of Mashiach, which is 358, is the same gematria value as the word Nachash for snake. Isn't that interesting? So Mashiach and snake have the very same gematria. You know, this is, uh, uh, this is like people who say there's no way God would use a, a quote-unquote man to come and die for the sins. That's God would never do that. Well, I should think that we would think that God would never use a serpent to bring healing either. And yet that's exactly what he did. That which we think would be evil and totally outside the bounds of God's way of bringing healing. That's precisely what he used. So it says in the Zohar it is told that when the Holy snake Mashiach will kill the evil snake, that is, obviously, the primordial snake. It says here in parentheses, overcoming the fear of insanity. Why does it say that? Because the sages say that one who sins 
has been overcome with a spirit of insanity because sinning doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So you have to you have to be kind of crazy to be a sinner. You have to abandon all logic and all right thinking. You know that what you're doing is going to lead to punishment. You know it's going to lead to suffering, and yet you do it anyway. That can only be explained by someone who's been overcome, with, temporarily anyway, with the spirit of insanity. So it says, He will thereby merit to marry the divine princess, to unite with the origin of the souls of Israel, and to bring about the redemption of the world. The Ram call, he writes, says, and from then onwards, this characteristic of appearing in the mystical capacity of a snake is given to the Mashiach, especially to the Mashiach bin Yosef, the Messiah who's supposed to come and suffer and die for our sins, who is the mystical embodiment of the left. Since then, the tikkun has been prepared in the mystical mission of the two Messiahs. For the Messiah bin Yosef mystically represents the left, and he bears the character of the exterior, which needs all these tikkunim, and the Mashiach bin David mystically represents the right, which needs to be joined to the left, and the redemption will be complete. In other words, you have to have the suffering Messiah, and you have to have Messiah bin David in order to have a complete redemption. You have to have both. And by the way, this is a very common understanding in Judaism. It is by no means out in left field. It's very, very well understood. So if you ever have a conversation, incidentally, with somebody who's Jewish, and they don't understand how you can believe in Mashiach, and they've um, they've learned all kinds of um, of things. It's it's no different in Judaism than it is in Christianity. People just hear when they're in a in a, in a particular church of a particular domina- denomination, they're just hearing what the, denom- the the dogma, the doctrine of their denomination. And I'm not with with saying that I'm not being necessarily critical. That's just the nature of organizations. You hear the dogma, the belief of the organization. And so it's no different in the Jewish world. Sometimes people think who aren't Jewish and aren't familiar with the Jewish world, people think that all Jews are just uh, super educated scholars of Torah. Um, And that's not really true at all. Now, are they more knowledgeable than Christians about the Bible? Well, probably. On average, I would probably say yes. But I was just, uh, my wife and I were just listening to a, a, um, a shur by a, a prominent rabbi just, I don't know, a month or so ago. And he was lamenting about how the students were coming out of yeshiva and um, basically didn't even know the basics of Torah Judaism. And they had spent their entire lives in yeshiva from the time they were young boys all the way up to... I guess, college age. And he was lamenting about this fact. And he and he was even talking about the fact that they were having a, a program to bring these young people in to educate them. And the, the things upon, with which they were edu- or, or about which they were educating them were just basic stuff. This is why, my friends, you have websites like Chabad, which are great websites. But you notice when you go to Chabad, it's all about teaching. And a lot of times it's teaching the basics, how to light candles, how to say the bracha over a cup of wine, how to say bracha over a challah, how to wash the hands, uh, how to wear a seat seat. It's just all the basic stuff. And my friends, not one of those articles or videos or anything of that nature is intended for somebody who's not Jewish, not one of them. They do not, they have no intention. They do not want to teach Gentiles any of that stuff. They're not interested in any way, shape, or form. It's all a ministry to Jews. With that said, 
people don't know. They're just hearing the dogma. When they go to their synagogue, they're just, they don't know. They're just hearing what the rabbis teach them. So they've been told there's no such thing as, as, uh, original sin, uh, JC can't be the Messiah because he didn't bring about the uh, tikkun of the world, and, and, they, and you know, and most of them maybe don't even know about Messiah Ben Yosef, to be honest. So anyway, you can just say, the reason I believe in Messiah, and they say, well, how can he be the Messiah if we still don't have world peace, which every contestant for Miss America wants. Every contestant for Miss America is praying for world peace. How come we don't have world peace if he's the Messiah? And you say, well, he's the Messiah bin Yosef. He's the suffering Messiah who is to come and suffer and die for our sins. Just like the just like the holy snake. Anyway, so it says here, and then you refer him to the Aliyah day. <laughs> so, so it says, um, uh, another insight from Mr. Burton's um, uh, uh, article. Says the Zohar reveals the identity of the rod of Moses in a jaw-dropping statement. This is just really good. I just want to share it. The Zohar, Exodus, Mishpatim, 384, 19. The staff given to you will be a tree of life. Now, there's a lot to be said about the, the staff. There's actually quite a lot that uh, um, is in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer about the staff and, and its origins and everything about it. It's very fascinating. We don't have time to get into it now, but... It says the staff given to you will be a tree of life, denoting Vav, that's the letter Vav, which is the son of yud Hey. So the staff is a tree of life, which denotes Vav, which Vav is a symbol for man, which happens to be the son of Yah. That's what it's saying. Now, it says, um, not only the one who was bitten by the serpent was to look at it and live, but it also says that those who were bitten by anything, by a viper, a scorpion, a wild beast, or even a dog. They were to look at the serpent and they'd be healed. So in other words, the serpent that was lifted up was a, a source of healing for everything, for every affliction, not just the affliction of being bitten by the, by the fiery serpents. It also says here in the Midrash Shabbat, Moses made a serpent of copper and placed it on a pole. So the Midrash is looking at the phrase, Al Hanes. And it means that this happened through a miracle. So what literally happened was, is that Moses threw the copper serpent into the air and it stayed there on its own, supernaturally. This is why the Mashiach said, if I be lifted up, meaning that I will lift myself up. No man takes my life. No man lifts me up. The Mashiach lifts him up. All we have to do, we have to do our part. We have to throw it up, so to speak. We have to do our part to, uh, to, to bring about and publicize the miracle, as it were. But um, supernaturally, he stays elevated so that everybody can see him. Now, I want to transition here and talk to you about, uh, man, there's so much in all of this. But let me just say, I want to tell you this story because there's a song here, the Spring Up a Well song. And uh, lyrics have been written about this. And I think there's even been um, uh, musical, put the, put the music, what have you. But I want to, again, quoting from the Midrash Shabbat, tell the story about the well and why there was a song to it. So this has to do, this is the section here, is Midrash Shabbat 1925. 
This is in reference to Bami Bar 21, 14 through 20, where it's talking about um, the Book of Wars of Hashem. Now, the Book of the Wars of Hashem was a lost work. It says, Rabbi Monk brings down that this was a book attributed to Abraham as its author that was lost at the time of the exile. And the Torah is actually quoting from this book, which is another shout out to um, other rabbinical sources. People say, I don't believe in any rabbinical source. I don't believe in Talmud. I don't believe in Midrash. I don't believe in anything like that. I am sola scriptura. I'm word of God only. Well, no problem with this. God isn't because he's quoting. God actually quotes from a book that Abraham wrote, which has been lost to us. Unfortunately, we don't know what it is, but I'm just saying the Torah is quoting from another source. So when we quote from sources, we say, oh, that's not valid. Well, I mean, I hate to say that the Torah disagrees with you, that actually there are valid sources. And we talked about this yet, uh, earlier in the week. We mentioned that the Apostle Paul, who was everybody's champion for anti-Judaism, um, when in fact he is not, um, actually himself quotes from the oral Torah. So anyway, it says here, this uh, this um, this teaches a, a, a interesting story. The Holy must be he performed signs and miracles for the Israelites at the valleys of Arnon, like the miracles that he performed for them at the Sea of Reeds. And what are the miracles of the valleys of Arnon? So it says a, that there was a, I'm, I'm just going to kind of fast forward here because for the sake of time, but the Midrash is talking about how that this particular valley was an excellent position for an ambush. That there were, uh, it was a very rocky, it was very narrow, it, it was very solid. You could hear, you could talk to someone who was 2,000 cubits away and they could hear you just fine. It was a perfect spot for an ambush and there was a very, very um, uh, large protruding rocks on one side and caves on the other. So it says that um, the peoples, the multitude of the nations, said, when the people of Israel descend into the valley, those of us that are stationed in the valley stand before them and attack them, and those that are above will attack from the caves and will kill them all. And as soon as the people of Israel reached that place, and they did not even have to go through the valley, because God signaled to the mountains, whereupon one mountain moved from its place, and the, the big projectile rocks, the breast-like rocks, would crush those who were in the caves, and the mountains brought their heads close to each other, and and it came a trodden road, and it was uh, not known which mountain moved and approached the other mountain. So it says, the rocks entered the caves and crushed all the, the warriors there, the ones that were laying in ambush. And the well descended to the valley where it swelled and destroyed all the multitudes that were gathered there. So the well goes down and floods the place and drowns those that are left. As this, just like the Sea of Reeds destroyed the Egyptians. And therefore, the verse compares the gift of the Sea of Reeds to that of the Valley of Arnon. Now, it says the people of Israel passed over the mountain. They did not know about this miracle. They had no idea that what had happened of this had taken place. The Holy and Blessed Be, he said, I shall make known to my children how many multitudes I destroyed from before them. So the well descended into the caves and brought forth innumerable skulls, arms, legs of all those that had been crushed. And the people of Israel went back to see the well. It says in the footnotes that the, the well was actually the one that went before them and, and did all of this. And when they, the people noticed that the, the well wasn't following them any longer, they went back to find out, hey, where'd the well go? Because the well was supposed to follow them around. 
So it says, um, He said, I shall make known to my children how many multitudes I destroyed before them so that the well descended into the caves and brought forth evidence. It brought forth skulls and arms and so on. They were saying, bring forth the evidence. And they were celebrating the fact that God had performed many, many, many miracles uh, for the people of Israel. This is just a reminder in this story that there are many miracles. There's so much to be said about this. I mean, we're, we're kind of out of time, unfortunately. But um, there's so many miracles that God does for us, my friends, and we have no idea that he's, he has accomplished them. There are many, many, many miracles that, that happen throughout our day. When we're driving, when we're sleeping, when we're going to and fro, God is out there protecting us, destroying the proverbial enemy, and bringing about our very best. And we have no idea. So just be thankful to God that everything that he has done for us and everything he's going to do for us continue to bless his holy name. I wish we had more time. Uh, there's uh, so much more to say, but we are out of time, and I'm so sorry. But we are not out of God's goodness. Today is prep day. Tomorrow is the Shabbat. I want you to have a blessed and wonderful and, ama wonderful and amazing Shabbat. May God uh, grant you peace, grant you joy. And with God's help, we'll see everybody tomorrow, either in person or online. Shalom, blessings, have a great and fantastic day.